Welcome to the Coin World Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm still Larry Jewett, hoping that you're having yourselves a great time here as we're getting ready for a the long, hot summer and all the things that summer brings along with it. I know summer seminars getting cranked up here very soon, and uh, people are really doing more traveling. I know we got more shows here. We're about a month away from the fun show, and then, of course, the A&A World's Fair of Money right behind that. And, you know, the list goes on and on here. And, of course, don't forget you've got a lot of local shows that are happening that uh, don't manage to grab the headlines a lot. So, the important thing is get out there and enjoy it in the way that you can enjoy it. And I want to thank the fine folks at the Coin Standard. They're our sponsor for today's podcast. So thank you to the Coin Standard. We'll tell you more about them coming up here in just a few minutes. All right. Can't wait to learn about them. Um, there's a lot we're going to cover this week, this episode. Uh, in a bit, we'll have the interview with Joshua McMorrow Hernandez, author of a new book about American Silver Eagles. Uh, of course, uh, we're we're thinking about things that are happening in the news today. Um, I guess one of the, the fun things recently was seeing that the ANA, that's the American Numismatic Association, if you're not familiar, they have announced, uh, the organization has announced uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award winner uh, for this year. The award will be presented during the ANA show in Pittsburgh in August, and that is uh, Coin World's own columnist, Wendell Wolka. Wendell, of course, uh, has been on the podcast in the past. Uh, we talked about uh, obsolete notes, and uh, he's authored a couple catalogs on those from uh, Indiana and Ohio. He uh, writes for the numismatist. He's a cataloger for Heritage. Um, just a regular nice guy um, and uh, very, I, I'll never forget, my first ANA show was 2003, 20 years ago in Baltimore, and I was assigned to go cover this like trivia event type thing for kids, I think it was, and Wendell was the MC, and I had never met him before and walked in and you know said, hey, this is who I am. I'm with Coin World, and and he was super friendly. And even if I hadn't said Coin World, I think it would have been uh, fine to have just uh, approachable, you know, uh, nice guy, and uh, knows a whole lot about paper money, uh, especially. Um, so yeah, good uh, congratulations to to Wendell. And there's some uh, some other awards. They'll be they'll be announcing a slew of awards over the next six weeks, I guess, or, or a month. They roll these out little by little and uh, let the recipients of the award sort of stand alone in the limelight for a little bit before um, uh, making the next announcement. So that was a big thing uh, here just recently that, um, that caught my attention. Yeah, indeed. And uh, I had a chance to meet Wendell at the SPMC meeting in January and uh, spent some time there. He's always been very, very helpful to me as well. And I really do enjoy reading his material. And uh, he's also, in addition to the notice about the fact that he is going to be the recipient of this very special award, his column does appear in this latest issue of Coin World. So you need to check that out too, because it's an interesting historical piece. And if you like history, if you like paper money, he's always got something that's really of consequence there for you to enjoy. But speaking of the ANA, don't forget, you are an ANA member, and I know people get busy sometimes, that you still have a little bit of time left to, to make sure that you vote for the president, vice president, and the board of governors here, because that window is going to close up. And when it does, that you lost your chance to have a say in who's going to be leading this organization. And again, because of the membership that you have in the organization, you want to make sure that you uh, do an active part in that. So in addition to the uh, notification about Wendell's award and also with the uh, column that he wrote and uh, some of the other columns, John Roberts, another one of our past guests, is, has his column in there as well. You want to make sure, make sure that you uh, pick up the latest issue of Coin World, subscribe to it, get the digital edition, whatever the case may be. We've got some 
uh, breaking news things have been happening. Paul Jokes has been taking care of looking at what the production figures have been like for the U.S. Mint. And uh, a lot of great information packed into this issue as we get set for our uh, July monthly issue that, that we're working on as well. We've got some more great information. I'm not even going to mention the word Hawaii. I ruined it for you last time. So I guess I just did mention the word Hawaii, but that's... Uh, Hawaii, Hawaii, Hawaii. Isn't yeah, it? that's um, it. Yeah. Anyway. Hey, there's a lot going on. Uh, my personal favorite uh, fun read was our our colleague uh, Bill Gibbs' story about the return of a penny I sent, a large cent that had been stolen from the American Numismatic Society years ago, almost like 65 years ago, I think, or 70, something like that, uh, from the Clapp collection. William Sheldon stole it, and it turns out that it, um, it wound up in the Walt Husack collection, and of course, Walt died in December, and the family has been um, cooperating, working with the um, the ANS to return that coin. Uh, it was it was one of Walt's wishes uh, that uh, I believe they were talking about it even before he died. Once they realized that um, he had the the coin, so. Uh, nothing untoward from him. It was one of these situations where the story about William Sheldon uh, switching out the coins back in, I want to say the 70s, um, you know, this stuff entered the market surreptitiously. People didn't know about it till the 90s. And it was uh, in recent years that Walt came to realize that his piece was uh, among those that had entered the market that way. And so the family, kudos to them for completing his wishes and getting that back to the ANS. And I, I did find it interesting, the ANS, as part of its uh, project to encourage the return of these pieces, there was something like 129 taken and um, somewhere around 46 left, I think, if I remember right, uh, that, that are yet to be recovered but uh, to encourage that recovery they're uh, they're gladly trading the piece that they have in their collection that um sheldon put in there years ago uh you know sheldon swapped out lesser pieces you know he he, he took better pieces and put lesser pieces in their collection and so now the ans is saying here well you know you give us this back what that was ours and uh you know we'll will return the favor and, and give you back. Uh, you'll at least get a coin out of it. So uh, that was that's fun. It's not a um, it's not an everyday occurrence. Uh, every once in a while, there'll be something recovered, whether it's something from the DuPont uh, robbery or in this case, the Clap Sheldon um, saga. Uh, so that's really cool. Check out the story um, in Coin World if you haven't uh, seen it already. Yeah, and that's a great story, too, because, I mean, I had the opportunity, as many of us did at the Central State Show in uh, 2022, to see the PCGS showdown they had with the uh, Colonel Steve Ellsworth and also Walt Husack before he passed in December, had their uh, coins on display there. So I'm not sure if that 1794 was there, but it may well have been. And, of course, if anybody knows about Walt's story, he had a great collection, then he sold it, and then he just decided he had another one, and that's what he did. And and I understand, as you mentioned, that uh, he was in the process of getting that coin back to the uh, American Numismatic Society before he passed in December. So that just goes to show you another thing that here that how we all take care of each other in this great hobby of ours. So I want to thank you for bringing that one up here right now. Let's let's go back a little bit in time right now for our look at this week in numismatic history. Sure. Uh, yeah, it was my pleasure to mention that. Uh, the the thing that sort of, uh, there are a couple of things happened on the same day, uh, years apart. And um, they're, they're, you know, looking back in, uh, in history, they're not anything that sort of moved the needle in, in a huge way. But I think they're springboard, springboards for discussion. Uh, we're going to June 14th, 1848. Well, what happened that day? Uh, pretty fun story out of San Francisco. The California Star, a newspaper, ceased publication when the staff 
left for the gold fields. This was amid the gold rush. And the staff was just like, bye, Felicia, peace out. We're gone. We're going to look for some gold. And um, there was nobody left for, <laughs> for the publication. Uh, hopefully there's no gold rush today that uh, <laughs> Larry's like, hey, we, we, we found gold in Florida. See ya. I'm done. done. I, I thought that was uh, pretty fun, pretty funny. But, um, but also on that day, um, 52 years before that, on, in 1796, that was when the Philadelphia Mint coined an additional 1,564 draped bust quarter dollars. And it got me thinking, you know, how often can you trace an object in your collection to the actual day it was made? Uh, you know, it, it reminds me of what was revolutionary back in the day when uh, beer company decided to put the born on dates on their beer on you know and, and publicize and i don't drink beer but uh, i'll never forget hearing about that concept and so you could hey this was bottled on such and such a day this was made then well you know there's almost 1600 drape bus quarters from 1796 you can pinpoint the day they were made june 14 1796 how cool is that? And, um, you know, the Royal Mint has done something like that in recent years where they do special coins that are struck on a day of significance. So they did that with the coronation here uh, just a few weeks ago and did a limited number of coins that they actually made on the day. So, you know, it's one thing to have a year date on a coin, but to know the exact day that something was made. I don't know. That just seemed pretty cool to me, even though that's not, you know, that, that's not a big story in, in history of numismatics, uh, but certainly fun, I thought, anyway. Yeah, it's a relatable thing because coming from the car world, it was always a big deal to take the VIN, which you, if you say VIN number, it's repetitious because it's a vehicle identification number, to take the VIN and it would be able to tell you based on it would tell you what type of engine, what type of package, et cetera. But it would also give you the sequential order in which the car was uh, was built. And consequently, by the manufacturing records, you were able to pinpoint what day that car rolled off the assembly line. And that was a big deal among the classic car folks. So I can totally understand what you're coming from when you talk about that. And speaking about a big deal, you know, when you get a coin collection, you start going here. You know, you get slab coins, and my question is, how do you display them? You, you, how do you find out? Because when you first start out, of course, you've got all kinds of different ways you can do it, but they're not as good as they possibly could be. You know, flimsy, unappealing, ways that just aren't made for coins. So displaying your coins is no longer a challenge thanks to the coin standard. The coin standard is specially designed specifically to fit your standard size slabs from PCGS, NGC, ICG, ANAX, and most third-party grading companies. Now, whether you're displaying these coins on your bookcase or sometimes on your desk, maybe in your man cave or on the shelf in the safe, the coin standard is the compact and elegant way to display your coins. You want to find out more information, they've got on their website, they've got the common Q&As, they've got the different variety of products, you can see them all right there. Simply go to buy, B-U-Y, coin, C-O-I-N, standard s-t-a-n-d-a-r-d dot com once again that's buy as in b-u-y coin standard s-t-a-n-d-a-r-d dot com you'll be glad you did because they've got a great looking display options for you that fit your purpose just right so check them out buy coin standard dot com and get those slab coins the way you want them to be displayed 1986 is our chosen year for obvious reasons here. You chose it. Tell us the obvious reason. So, well, 1986 was the year the first uh, American Eagles were launched. And uh, since Josh uh, talks about uh, the Silver Eagle spe specifically in the book, uh, you know, that that to me made the most sense. So, I went to the June 11 issue, 1986, and uh, lo and behold, there's a couple big stories on the front page that relate to our topic. Uh, that was unintentional, but it worked out, uh, and I, I was 
I, I do think there's a little bit of, um, you know, full circle on this because the, the top story is written by Ed Ryder and, and Josh Dudge mentioned uh, working with Ed when uh, Ed was still alive and in charge of Coinage magazine. So the, the top story reads, Fine Arts Trio Pans Bullion Designs should have reflected work of today's most talented people. So uh, what's the story? What's that about? Three commission of fine arts members were critical of changing the designs of the St. Godwin's $20 gold and Adolf Weinman's Walking Liberty half dollar for the gold and silver American Eagle bullion coins, respectively. Uh, I did find it interesting that, um, you know, Diane Wolf of New York representing the public on the commission says, I love Augustus St. Gaudens. I think he's a true hero of sculpture in America. However, in every era, there are new sculptors and new artists. And I think that these coins should have reflected the work of today's most talented people. Um, there's, um, you know, the idea was this was, uh, this was a new program. Rick Hart of Washington, a sculptor said, it's just a, such a narrow point of view when you have to reuse a design that's nearly 80 years old in order to achieve some kind of success. This is a rich opportunity to, to do something that is of our age. Uh, so, I, you know, looking back, hindsight, 2020, all that, I think the designs are classic. And, um, you know, the hobby has certainly never been shy. Folks in the hobby have never been shy about saying, oh, we like these designs. Why don't we use them again or go back to them or hearken back to them? And um, so this this little um, debate, contra temps, this uh, discussion about the designs of, of the bullion coins is, um, is curious in hindsight because we know what eventually happened. That was indeed, uh, you know, the designs were used, uh, Weinman's, uh, Walking Liberty and a slimmed down version of Miss Liberty on St. Gowden's um, uh, double eagle coin for the the bullion. So uh, the other story um, just gets into more details about the um, the program and, and when the coins were going to be available. I didn't realize this or remember this. The um, the coins were released in October of 1986. And there was such demand, we know this in hindsight, there was such demand that um, the 1986 proof coin is the highest mintage proof version in the program. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of the ins and outs of the program with Josh here in a bit. And I think it's probably appropriate to uh, use that as the, the basis for a trivia question, no? But I figured, first, I, yeah, I figured that was going to happen. So, yeah, definitely. But you first, know, I, I need to, you need to come back to me because I think you just disappeared right here. But first, I need to hear from Mr. Larry about what jumped out at you on the letters page. Well, I'll tell you now, because 1986, in addition to the uh, reason that we already cited, it was also the centennial of the uh, starting of construction of the iconic Statue of Liberty, the uh, of the statue that sits in uh, in uh, Long Island area or in the uh, New York area there and uh, was gifted to us from the French. And there was an uproar about French Statue of Liberty coins. And the one letter, the first letter that starts it off here, I'm writing in response to Mr. Richard T. Morello's letter to the editor in the May 21st issue of Coin World regarding his call for a boycott of the French Statue of Liberty coin. Mr. Morello should be reminded that the Statue of Liberty was a gift to this country from the nation of France, symbolizing our common democratic beliefs and long friendship. Would Mr. Morello, in response to France's denying us access to their airspace, also be in favor of forbidding the French delegation from attending the statue's dedication ceremonies this summer? Or would he be in favor of shipping the statue back to France altogether? Those who like to constantly harp on this country's role in the liberation of France in World War I and World War II should be reminded that if it were not for the French, this country would probably not have succeeded in achieving its independence from the British in the Revolutionary War. Indeed, careful examination of history reveals that the country had no stauncher allies than the French. 
Actually, I agree with Mr. Morello in principle. The French should have been should have given us access to their airspace, but this was not possible given the political economic realities in their country. Nevertheless, we should not throw away over 200 years of friendship over one incident. The French Statue of Liberty coins, as is the statue itself, are a unique representation of French-American friendship. It is indeed very rare when a country will honor another country by minting a coin with a representation of its most cherished monument. Most importantly for the collector, however, is the fact that the French commemoratives are beautiful coins which will, from all indications, most certainly completely sell out. Further, in light of quadrupling in price of the U.S. Statue of Liberty sets, these coins appear to have tremendous investment potential. Those of us who missed out on the opportunity to purchase the U.S. sets should view these coins as an especially appealing opportunity. We should regard the French coins, as well as the statue, as a lasting tribute of the unique bond between the United States and France, which will transcend temporal pol political setbacks. To me, these coins represent the most noble democratic principles that unite our two countries. I am extremely grateful to France for both the Statue of Liberty and the beautiful commemoratives. I am looking forward to receiving my sets. That's George C. McCarver out of Wilton, Connecticut. That's his letter. Hey, I, I love the um, the Statue of Liberty as a collecting theme and have several coins that relate to that and medals and tokens and, well, I don't know about tokens, I guess medals. Uh, certainly the uh, 1986 Sears relic medal made from copper harvested from the surface uh, when the statue was cleaned up in the mid 80s. That's a common and fun one. And I have several of those. Uh, love those French pieces. Uh, you know, uh, the writer talked about there's um, they're eminently affordable. Uh, they're available in silver, PA4 silver, gold and platinum. Uh, fun stuff. Uh, fun stuff indeed. And that was, uh, yeah, 1986. Big, big doings. That was the uh, most, I think, the highest mintage uh, modern commemorative coin. Well, for that matter, uh, any commemorative coin. Uh, there's certainly none of the earlier ones had mintages as high as that 1986 U.S. program uh, did. So uh, they are ubiquitous. But uh, one, one of those things thinking that's 37 years ago. Oh, man. I remember I was still working in radio. We did a live remote from there. I It wasn't we. It wasn't me. I wasn't there. But we did. The station did. So just remembering those times, 1986. And certainly uh, that's where we uh, wrap up the look back at the coin world issue from 1986. And I think it's time for Jeff to do his thing here. He looks forward to this part of the program. I'm not so sure I share that same enthusiasm. <laughs> I know the listeners do. But I sometimes don't. Well, you know, last episode, we got to talk to Cameron McLean, and because we were dwelling in a Scottish numismatic space, I, I thought I would ask about designs for the United Kingdom's one-pound coin back before they modified it and went to a ring by metallic, and uh, there are several different years that the coin featured a design element based on a... Um, a Scottish theme, Scottish element. And I wondered if you knew what those elements were and maybe when those coins were released. So uh, there are, as it turns out, like five different themes that were used across um, two, four, five, six, seven, seven different years. So do you have any idea the answers what could it represent Scotland on United Kingdom's one pound coins? Well, I'm, I'm definitely going to have an incomplete on this one, but uh, I, I I have to believe the thistle, the national symbol, is there somewhere. I have to believe that's got to be one of them. And, you know, knowing, I mean, I'm going to rule out Haggis. I doubt that's on there. But, I mean, I'm going to, I mean, if there's probably an animal, probably something like a lion, something along that line that's in there somewhere, but I'm really struggling to come up with, I mean, what they would use that might be emblematic, perhaps a building or a bridge or a structure of some kind. But I, beyond that, I really can't come up with anything. Are, are, are you pulling my leg? 
No, that's, I mean, that's pretty much, I'm just kind of thinking logically here, um, you know, because I've, I've seen some things, I mean, I've seen a lot of things where the United Kingdom, they always try to incorporate the national symbols. And I think the thistle's the one for Scotland that they use. And I know that I think one of them has the leak. I think that's Wales, but, you know, just thinking that it, they probably on the basic well, side of things, they probably started with, you know, the thistle on for Scotland, but then having never been there, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, you yeah. think of big Ben and all this, but, you know, having never been to Scotland, I'm not sure what they might do. I mean, I wish my friend, my friend Stewart's going to be here in about three weeks and I could have had him in here and uh, he could tell me all about it, but well, that's you pretty don't, much it. You uh, don't need Stewart's help because here I thought this was a stumper of a question and you nailed them. Uh, you are absolutely correct on the thistle that was used from uh, uh, or for the 1984 and 1989 coins. You are correct about the lion, although I will say it's lion rampant. It's uh, standing up sort of like he's, you know, about. To oh, yeah. Okay. And that was you. used in 1994 and 1999. You said a bridge. Well, that's correct. The UK did a series of four coins honoring bridges of the constituents of the United Kingdom and the fourth bridge that's not number four but f-o-r-t-h fourth bridge appears on the 2004 coin you also have the city of Edinburgh the representing the capitals of the United Kingdom in 2011 oh, okay yeah so you didn't get sense. that no I didn't get that I said building so maybe you know the, yes and the that, city's composed of a bunch of buildings and 2014, you had the thistle again, and this time with the bluebell as well. So you oh, you, okay. you nailed nailed that really well. I'm giving you full credit. You you did good. Um, there's lots of there's lots of great designs out there on that uh, series, and there's also as I featured in the uh, photo finish several years ago, uh, the round pound that chunky. Um, you know, it, it looks like a homogenous metal, you know, but it's actually copper and nickel. It's this chunky thing. It's not a ring by metallic like they use now. They use that same denomination and same specifications in Jersey, in Guernsey, in Falkland Islands, I think, in uh, Isle of Man. Anyway, you can get other round pounds from outside of the United Kingdom but they're the little island nations that were related. So there's a lot of ways to collect the round pound. In any event, um, uh, this one is not going to be as tough, but uh, maybe I will stump you with this one. We're talking about the American Silver Eagle. Of course, I mentioned the 1986 being the high watermark for proof mintage, and 1996 is low watermark for regular bullion mintage. What? year of the American Silver Eagle has the highest mintage bullion, uh, you know, the bullion version has the highest mintage for the program. What year was that? And give me the mintage in millions, hundred thousands, you know, um, uh, you know, give me a number, 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 dot number, you know, so that's, that's the kind of, you know, that there's enough of a hint there that tells you it's more than 10.1 million. Gotcha. And, um, number, number, X number. Do you know what that is and what year that is? Um, so we, we talk about all this fun stuff with, with Josh, uh, put your thinking caps on, put your listening ears on. I don't know. Uh, and, and maybe, I don't know if we talk about this with him or not, but, uh, check out the interview all about the American silver Eagle here. That is. The Coin World Podcast is delighted today to be joined by Joshua McMorrow Hernandez, who, among many other things, is the author of the recently published book, A Guidebook of American Silver Eagles, published by Whitman Publishing. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it. You too, Larry. Oh, it's great because, I mean, this is, I'm excited. We, we met recently, and uh, I want to talk a little bit more about that coming up here in just a few moments. But for our guests who are not familiar with you, I mean, you're more than just the author of one of these books. You've been doing so much in the field of numismatics. Tell us a little bit about your backstory and how you became involved and what is it that uh, really motivates you? Oh, gosh, Larry, I'll tell you, you know, I am, I think, 
before anything else, I am a curious learner. I, I love to explore. I love to ask questions. Um, my background in coins kind of was tertiary for the longest time. I mean, as a kid, uh, my mom remembered stories uh, and seeing when she was a young kid, her older brothers, with what she used to call her, their Blue Whitman books uh, filled with coins. Uh, she often relates stories of my grandfather, her dad, who passed before I was born, but he carried around a pocket piece, 1921 Morgan dollar. And she had these memories she'd share of him pulling out his change, like for a toll booth and he'd push aside the 21 Morgan dollar and he'd you know, count his change out and such. My dad, a uh, magician, he's always involved coins in his magic, but I didn't really have any collecting background in my media family. Um, and then when I was about 11 years old in the summer of 1992, I, my cousin, my sister and I, cousin came down from, uh, from Baltimore here to Florida. And he had just inherited a collection of coins from one of his uncles outside of my bloodline. And I don't know, seeing this, he had a bunch of foreign coins and old Lincoln wheat cents. And I thought, ah, these are kind of neat, these old coins. And then he left, went back home. But I started to keep an eye on the coins in my, my pocket change. And one night, my mom was doling out her, her change to my sister and myself, our allowance change. And this 1941 Lincoln wheat cent was in the change I received. And something about this coin, which was then 51 years old, which today was like the mid-70s, but <laughs> at the time it was, I remember thinking, wow, this coin was minted during the start of World War II. And I thought of all the things that were happening in my, in my grandmother's life when she was a young person. And that, that 1941 Lincoln penny, just, it just caught me off guard in a way that um, I wanted to look for more of these coins. And so like every, or I can't say every young collector, but like this young collector did, I went on to clean that coin right away thinking, oh, I'll make it look nice and pretty. <laughs> and then I started to <laughs> ask around. I actually went to the phone book looking for coin dealers, asking what the coin was worth and all this and that. My mom and dad took me to, uh, we always went looking for books, bookstore. And I remember going into the uh, youth department and there were a couple of coin books there. And I remember asking my mom, who was with me at the time, store, I had, I had this book. And it was called Coin Collecting for Kids by Margot Russell. And, um, and it came like a little packet of foreign coins. And I devoured that book, guys. I mean, I literally just tore through that book in a matter of hours. And I wanted to learn more and more. And alongside this little journey, numismatics that was just picking up, I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I actually, by that time in my life, I'd already self-published a little children's story that uh, I sold at a local bookstore. And um, so I, I was able to kind of marry my love of writing and numismatics into one pursuit. And again, I was 11 years old, so it wasn't a professional pursuit at that time. So, you know, I get in my teen years and I kind of got away from the hobby for a little bit. I uh, went to college. I got a degree, my bachelor's degree in English, technical writing and professional writing. And I got a job at a local marketing firm, and I enjoyed that. It was a neat, solid paycheck coming in, insurance benefits. You know, I couldn't complain about that. But I realized I didn't really want to always be sitting in a cubicle. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to and, and writing about, you know, I was writing for various kinds of uh, uh, home improvement firms and moving companies. It was fun. And it honed my skills as a writer. But I really wanted to write other things. And I thought, gosh, if I were to go into freelance writing what would I write about and I at, by this time I'd already expanded my collection I was back in the hobby and I thought why not write about coins so I reached out to uh, Ed Ryder God bless his soul uh, 2014 and I've been buying coinage magazines since I was 11 12 years old and they had in there a regular feature called coin capsule and what it did was for those who don't know this regular feature would look, take a certain year in history and look at both the numismatic history from that year and numismatic events and social and historical events from that year. And they'd kind of marry those various topics together. And I thought, ah, that's something I'd like to do, right? Like write a coin capsule uh, article. So I reached out to, to Ed um, and he, I proposed a, a, a year, I, my, my birth year, 1981. I, I knew that year's history fairly well from my own curiosity. And uh, uh, he took a chance on me, and uh, he ran my coin capsule, uh, 1981 article. And he, he asked me, well, do you want to write uh, this topic? I think it was, if I'm remembering correctly, it was about pocket change fines. 
And from there, my entry into the more professional writing realm of numismatics really kicked off. And by that time, I should go back a little bit. By that time, I was also to kind of pay the college bills. I had found a website called Associated Content where you can write a piece, a blog, and you get page, uh, paid per page view. And I wrote about everything under the sun from, from road trips to, uh, to the football, which I like football, to coin collecting. And through that little side thing I was doing, side hustle, I had been uh, uh, funtimesguide.com. It's a recreational website. A writer for them saw my writing for associated content and asked if I could write some coin logs for the fun times guide. Um, which I did. And that, that was a, a great pursuit. I'm still doing that to this day, actually, on my, many of the things I'm doing. Um, but those experiences of writing about coins, my interest in the hobby, really is what led into my writing for Coinage. And within a year or two, I was writing for Coin Week. Uh, the Gray Sheet had reached out to me not long after that. And then um, in 2016, I was tapped to become the editor-in-chief of Fun Topics, um, which is a role I still carry today very proudly. And then really went from there. And I'll tell you, I, I owe everything I have in this, in this career of mine to people who give me a chance, to opportunities and to people uh, 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 you know, reaching out to me and, and giving me a chance to grow. And I think that anybody who, um, anyone who's successful, uh, it's because of opportunities that they've been given. And uh, I'm so grateful to everybody. And you guys the same, like with this podcast today. Uh, I just am so grateful to those reaching out to me and, and letting me talk and share, talk about and share my love of this hobby with other people. Yeah, well, you you wouldn't have made it to the editor in chief of PCGS Market Report if you weren't delivering the goods, and you certainly deliver the goods. I don't I don't know that you ever sleep. The amount of uh, pros that you're you're generating, uh, it's seemingly <laughs> two hours a night, Larry. <laughs> That's pretty much it. I mean, I just whenever I think I'm busy, uh, your your image comes into my head right here. And if I think I'm oh. busy, well, how busy is this guy? You know, so I don't know. You, you I, I tell you what. Uh, Something I think we learned as journalists in this hobby is you don't get much sleep. And um, as far as PC Market Report, uh, which I appreciate you mentioning, that that role. So I I was contracted for PCGS for a couple of years, uh, submitting articles for the blog for the, the news website, and then uh, eventually I stepped into an editor in chief role when that position opened up, and uh, under a contracting uh, guys, mind you. And um, about a year, I see, about almost a year ago, come August of a year, I was brought in officially as an employee of PCGS, as editor-in-chief of the magazine. And I got to tell you that the team over there is absolutely remarkable. I work with a fantastic group of people. We all have a great synergy about us. And the number one goal is to, to you know, make things happen, to uh, educate the public, talk about what's going on in the hobby. Um, obviously write about things from the past. Um, you know, we, we, I, I love, so my, one of my goals is to always have like a history story in the market report. Um, either I'll write or somebody else will. But I think it's important to not just look ahead, but look back because you don't know where you're going if you don't know where, where you've been. And um, so having this role editor in chief for the market report has just been a true blessing to me and a, a role I've really enjoyed. There's one thing that just keeps coming through and what you're talking about in your experience here. And that is everything you do seems to be connected to a deadline. How do you feel about uh, having <laughs> deadlines all the time? Are you organized enough that you can give me some tips on this? I appreciate it. I, I don't know if I've done well with it. I will say this. I'm looking right now at a list of things to do today. Lists have kept me in line. And I think without a list, I would be like a chicken with his head cut off. Um, I, I literally will itinerize everything in my day and not just my work, you know, do the laundry. Uh, wake up, no, <laughs> go for a walk. But I think when it comes to journalism, um, you, you, and you're 100% correct, you've got to meet the deadline or else you haven't done your job. And um, I think one thing I've really had to work on myself and I'm still working on is time management, um, which is not easy to do, especially when you have large projects and smaller tasks to do. Uh, and sometimes you're waiting for an interview to come through. You know, one thing I'll start early with any project when it involves an interview or research, I'll start those things first because, you know, everybody's people have their own lives going on. They're busy. So if you need to have somebody reach back out to you to answer questions, you want to give them as much time as possible to get back with what you need for information or resources. So I always try to kind of prioritize in any project what 
has to get done first. What's the foundation I've got to build this building on? Building being an article. And uh, once I get the interviews out of the way, then I figure, okay, I've got X number of days to go from taking my resource information and polish it into a final product. And uh, I, I, for me, it's time management and lists. That's how I get by. That and coffee, I'll say. I, I'm a regular at uh, Dunkin' Donuts or Dunkin's and at Wawa here in the East Coast. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, that Wawa. I mean, I wouldn't survive without that. But hopefully they'll sponsor the podcast here someday. That'd but... be wonderful if they could. <laughs> yeah, it would go be. Buy a, go buy a hoagie and a sizzly. No. <laughs> well, they're supposed to build one in Bartow. So I'm in good shape right there. Oh, so. lucky you. But, yeah, no doubt about that. You know, the work that you're doing, there's a lot of satisfaction involved of it, but there's also some recognition that comes along with it. And I had the pleasure of standing next to you as a representative of our writer, Paul Jilks, who received the uh, Numismatic Ambassador Award at the Fun Show in January, and you too were a recipient. What What's it like to get those kind of awards? It's very humbling, Larry. Um, you know, uh, first of all, I, in, I, I don't feel like I'm worthy of that recognition, I think, because first of all, I think of all the people I work with who really, um, not only are they seasoned journalists, they are true mystitists. They, not that I'm not a mystitist in the sense that I enjoy the hobby, people who have spent decades doing the craft, honing those skills. And for me, it's not just humbling, but it inspires me to want to learn more, to want to ask questions, not as a journalist or interviewer, but just as a curious mind. You know, what is it that you do? to improve your knowledge base? What is it you do to learn more about something? There's always something you can learn from somebody else. And I, I pray to God I make it to 100 plus years old. And if I do, I, I will never stop learning from other people till I draw my last breath. And I think, Larry, being among that crowd of people, and uh, it was an honor to be sitting alongside you and everybody in that, that crowd. I think yeah, of all the minds. Yeah, I'm sorry, Larry. Great folks, uh, Glenn and uh, Cindy yeah. and uh, Mitch Sanders, Mitch, of course. Yeah. yeah. So it was great to have them there. And uh, I think that comes humbling. down to uh, some of the strengths that we can appreciate as journalists, and that is building the relationships that we have with these people that uh, in, in opportunities like that. And I think you've touched upon that is uh, when we're doing the research and we're putting things together, it's important for us to know the people and have a good relationship. And you're 100% correct. Know the people. And also when it comes to journalism, you know, there are the, the ethos of journalism, you know, there's truth and accuracy, there's independence, there's fairness and impartiality, there's, you know, humanity and accountability. No matter what you do as a journalist, you take those ethos and you take the, the knowledge you've gleaned from other people and from your own research. And I think from the pursuit of wanting to learn more, there's a, there's a yearning, I think, that so many of us feel. And it doesn't have to be just numismatic, I mean, any area. But when you're writing about something, you're kind of telling a story and you're trying to impart whatever you know or have learned through your research and interviews to another person, to another audience. And uh, I think of what those people have done and are still doing to this day, those who have been honored and those who haven't, who have dedicated their lives like a vocation to, to our hobby and to their craft of, of writing. And that, to me, is a very inspiring thing. And I think I want to bring in one of those guys right now who's been tremendously helpful to me, and he's been quiet for 15 minutes now because I haven't given him a chance to speak. Hey, Jeff, your turn. Oh, yes. I, I, hey, Jeff. I, I, did, I didn't walk away and, and go look in the library or, or anything, get a snack, although I'm tempted. Get a coffee? <laughs> I, yeah, well, for, for me, it would be a, a Mountain Dew knockoff. No coffee. But, Mountain Dew, okay. But uh, anyway... Um, you know, you talk about sharing uh, the the hobby and educating folks. So naturally, I think of um, you know you you've done at least one other coin book or numismatic book that was on the history of the Philadelphia Mint uh, about three years ago. I want to say, is that right? Yeah, that was a uh, god. You know what? It feels like it was yesterday, and it was actually, believe it or not, twenty eighteen. <laughs> eighteen. Okay, five <laughs> years ago. ago. I know. Uh, so, so that was through Arcadia Press. I want to say the history imprint, but um, yeah. you're you're out now with this um, guidebook of American Silver Eagles, the twenty seventh book in the Bowers series from Whitman. How do you approach this assignment and bring fresh ideas and eyes to what, in my mind, and and maybe that's unfairly, I think is understandably a well covered topic. It's it's a you know fairly relatively young series. Like both of us, it you know debuted around the '80s, 
and uh, you know, <laughs> so or or maybe that wasn't the goal. Maybe it was just to simply catalog the series to completeness, at completeness, and the value was bringing all the information under one cover. So, I appreciate that question, Jeff. I'll tell you when. Uh, so I pitched a project to Whitman Publishing, and Dennis Tucker, the publisher there, offered me the opportunity to write on a guidebook of American Silver Eagles. And I was thinking, wow, that's a neat opportunity. But I was never thinking myself, when I first approached this, what do we say, what do we write differently in this book that I haven't seen anyway, anywhere else? And while this book serves as a catalog of the series and goes by issue by issue and even set by set, I wanted to kind of tell the origin story also of the American Silver Eagle. And I think that that's something I've not myself anyway. It might be out there, but I haven't myself seen myself. So when I kind of looked over the overview for this book, the, the layout, and I was talking with Dennis, we were kind of pitching ideas back and forth. My first thought was, what kind of book would I want to read on the series? Uh, and it's a series I've collected before. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I've ever gone as far as getting all the proofs and varieties. I, I had, uh, I've had over the years a couple of these basic bullion sets. So I, I knew the series as a collector, so to speak, and I've researched it. And actually, going back to other articles I've written over the last several years, various articles on the topic. So I kind of had a, a working knowledge of the series, having written about it and collected it. I thought, okay. And what was cool about this, to me, this project was. And Jeff, I know you'll probably uh, think of this too. There is a bit of nostalgia to this series. It debuted in 1986, a year we both remember. And I, uh, one thing I wanted to make sure I peppered throughout the book were photographs of the brochures and the marketing materials that came out with the series early on. And to kind of peel back the layer a little bit and see, okay, how did this come together? Sometimes there's a presumption that the Silver Eagle was kind of always destined to be what it became. But when you find out that the series actually evolved out of a silver bullion program that started in the late 70s to basically help to, um, we were, as many know, in a big time deficit in the late 70s and early 80s. And one of the things we could do as a nation was to sell off our silver stockpile. And so the series in 86 was actually born out of efforts to sell off the bulk of our silver stockpile, our defense stockpile of, of bullion. And there were proposals to even just sell pellets of silver. And um, there was a lot of pushback over the course of the next several years. And by 1985, um, with Liberty Coin Act, it was determined that we'd be able to, to monetize this stockpile sell-off through a, a coin program, a bullion coin program. Well, at the same time, um, as many also know, unfortunately, there were... Uh, um, practices in South Africa of, of racial uh, segregation and the nation South Africa had uh, also know had for years run the the Krugerrand program and we proposed sanctions against importing those coins so in that same process there was also an effort to create our own gold bullion program and as serendipity had it if you will looking at kind of the positive side of the coin act aspect the gold bullion program and the silver program really came together at the same time in late 1985. And it was actually through the design proposals for the gold eagle that a similar theme was determined for the silver bullion coin. And um, I had so much help from people involved in the mint in those days. Uh, Michael Brown being one of them, he was involved kind of in the marketing side of things. Uh, relayed stories about how the program came together from the marketing standpoint, you know, naming the coin, uh, proposing designs that would be able to kind of harken to the patriotic spirit of, of, uh, of our nation. And um, within the first months of 86, we, as a nation, decided that we'd have the American Silver Eagle program and the American Gold Eagle program. And I, I wanted to tell that story. And alongside that, I also wanted to showcase some of the marketing materials that really helped to sell this program that took off right away. I mean, these coins were sellouts from, from day one, practically. Um, and in the case of the Silver Eagle program, really, not only was it a way for people to invest in silver, but it also was a way for people to kind of collect silver in a way that the younger generation in those days had not been able to do. You know, they grew up with their grandparents and their parents talking about silver dollars. 
the silver eagle became America's modern silver dollar. And over the course of the next 35 plus years, this program, which was pitched really more as a bullion program to start with a collector element with a proof, the proof offerings later other finishes, became just this amazing catalog of coins that not only is it complex in the fact that there are over a hundred different issues now, including the different varieties and other elements, it's a series that really is able to reach collectors of all different avenues and incomes. And also, of course, is appealing to investors. And in that sense, the American Silver Eagle coin is really a great gateway coin to being both a collector and an investor. And it represents kind of like the intersectionality of investing and collecting. And hmm. while any coin could be considered in that framework, the Silver Eagle is unique, I think, because of the avenues it offers to various types of people and their uh, portfolio goals. So I, I want to talk about the investment side in a little bit, but <clears throat> first I, I'm thinking, you know, in the introduction, Q. David Bowers called the American Silver Eagle the Morgan Dollars of today. Right. Uh, given what you've just said, do you uh, agree or disagree with? <clears throat> excuse me, do you agree or disagree with that characterization, and and what uh, is, motivates that position? Well, I think the reason why anybody would compare the Silver Eagle to the Morgan Dollar. First of all, you look at the fact that both coins, um, they hearken to the American spirit. Uh, the Morgan dollar obviously is a, a fantastic symbol of the old American West and the romance of the old West. Uh, whereas a silver eagle in a very modern era came along with a classic design, Adolf Wyman's Walking Liberty design, paired with John McConkey's kind of stylized uh, heraldic eagle on the reverse. And so I think there's a patriotism to some degree with both coins, but from the numismatic standpoint, one might say the Morgan dollar might have more, obviously has a, a ton more key dates than the Silver Eagle series has. But when it comes to the complexity of the series, they're very much akin. You know, yes, the Morgans, they have hundreds of VAMs, uh, VAM varieties, and they have all kinds of key dates, but the Silver Eagle can look at this for a minute. First of all, it has its own key date, the 1995 West Point proof being yeah. certainly chief among those as a four-figure coin in any grade, proof grade. Uh, and then you've got a series or a line of, of bullion issue dates, the 96 being certainly chief among those. But there are challenges among the Silver Eagles, and there are expensive dates, and there are scarce dates. So, so and, that begs a question. I, I actually had this. You, you teed me up perfectly because I, I, I wrote, <laughs> you know, as, as sort of a guidepost. The 95W yeah. is the key, obviously, the key. But what did you find in working on this that was surprising to you as a key date or a tough coin uh, as you analyze the data that you didn't expect or, or didn't realize? Yeah, I think actually what surprised me most, and I had not studied this prior to working on the Silver Eagle book, was when it comes to conditional rarities, just how rare, not just 95W proof, but really the first decade or so of the Silver Eagles, and not just the bullion finishes, but the proofs also, they're very, very challenging in the, the proof and MS-70 grades. And I think when you look at it from the paradigm of grade, uh, grade rarity or condition rarity, there are many key dates from that standpoint in that series that make it tough to complete if you're going for a registry set or trying just to have a best of a best collection. This is not an easy set to build. And that's where the numismatic challenge and I dare say expense comes into play. So that begs another question because the book seems to be targeted to everyone from the casual investor to the serious collector. Obviously, you mentioned the the bullion side as being an investment uh, leverage or possibility, but the you know the proofs have a component in uh, IRAs as well that make them an investment right. vehicle. What approach? this um, investing or collecting what approach do you favor and obviously it's it's going to be personal preference and it's not gonna you know uh everybody teach their own i'm just curious what, sure. what you've taken as you've explored the topic you know what caught me by surprise um is i think a lot of people did not uh embrace the american silver eagle series early on as a true numismatic uh collectible and I can understand that because it was pitched originally as a bullion coin on the wholesale sense. But in the last several years, and we've all seen this, we've seen this gravitation towards Silver Eagles for a lot of reasons. 
A, because they're physical assets that you can hold in your hands. And in a time when we're seeing crypto go through its own growing pains, we've seen the stock market do what it's doing, people appreciate having a physical asset. Uh, B, these coins are artistically beautiful. And I know everybody has their own idea of what beauty is, but when you pair the classic Wyman design of a walking Liberty motif with the modern design, um, both by Emily Damstra, who done the who, who in 2021 debuted her <laughs> Flying Eagle design in reverse, and of course Picanti's Geraldo Eagle, there's a, a neat artistic side. But I think C, there's been a huge growth in this series from the collector side. We've seen people coming on and not just collect the, the bullion finish coin, but to go up to the proofs and reverse proofs and all the different finishes that way. And I think so as an investor, and I, I'm not going to provide investment advice because you know mm -hmm. we don't have a crystal ball. But I think logically, as growth continues for this series from the collector standpoint and the investor, we're going to see more pressure on these coins, especially the lower mintage pieces and the, 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 the conditional rarities, the, the 70s, you know, MS and proof. And of course, on the scarcer dates as well across the grading spectrum. So no one can promise we'll see growth appreciate, you know, or any price appreciation for any one coin. But I think that as the years go on and we see younger collectors or those who were children when this series came out or younger, and they have an affinity from the nostalgic side for these coins, I think we'll see continued growth and thus we'll see more pressure or demand on those, especially the scarcer uh, issues. Okay. So, so I'm going to let that stand as the last word actually on the topic. This is a, I want to say 374 page book. Yeah, it's it's packed with all sorts of uh, background. You you mentioned the approach in coinage with providing a historical context for the coins. You um, you do that throughout the book. You have interviews with uh, and and like interestingly all the uh, other Emily Damster's other coin designs. Interviews with designers like her, Michael Guadioso, collectors like Tom Unum, who was of course the uh, Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee. It is packed with stuff. Um, it, it now has a uh, place on my personal library. I am- Thank you. I'm missing all, but I think one of the 27 volumes in this Whitman series, one or two, and, and one of those I think I've misplaced somewhere in the office. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a very um, helpful and interesting book thank you so much for being here today to talk about it and of course your journey my pleasure uh, jeff larry i can't thank you both enough for having me on today it's been a true pleasure talking with you both and sharing uh uh what i can about not just my love of the hobby but my love of journalism and uh, to talk to you both you know in your own uh incredible rights uh collectors and journalists uh it's it's humbling to speak with you both and so thank you for having me today we appreciate that, but I think you have a deadline to meet, so we have to let <laughs> I do. Know. I do. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> Believe it or not, we we might as well. So uh, we'll, we'll take. I believe it. And uh, thanks again. And that was our interview with Joshua McMorrow Hernandez, author of the new Red Book about the American Silver Eagle. And it was uh, definitely something to consider right here. And fellow uh, Floridian giving us some great information there right now. You got, you got to get that book, too, because it's going to have a lot of great information in it. Everything Joshua does. And you know, we talked a little bit about all the things that he did. So here's another uh, individual I had the chance to spend some time with in January. So it was great to reconnect with him here on the podcast as well. And, of course, when you get your own uh, American Silver Eagle, you got to make sure you have it slabbed. And if you have it slabbed, you got to make sure you have a great way to display it. So our thanks once again to our Coin World podcast sponsor, Coin Standard. Once again, their website, buy, B-U-Y, Coin Standard. And that standard is spelled S-T-A-N-D-A-R-D. And that is uh, take a look at what they've got to offer you here. And thank you for supporting the Coin World podcast. And uh, yeah, we're, we're so glad that everyone was along for another episode we're um, we're moving forward. If you have any ideas, questions, complaints, maybe not complaints, but reach out to us. Let us know what you think, what you're collecting, how you are enjoying this, and how we can be of service uh, in the future. Because that's what this is all about: having fun, talking about the hobby, and uh, hopefully letting you learn a little bit while having some fun doing it. I didn't even get a chance to mention my discovery on Tuesday. I stopped at a retail establishment, 
paid in cash, and I got in change, and which I discovered when I got home 40 miles later, a 1942 cent, 81-year-old coin in change, came out of one of those change dispensers. Didn't think anything about it. I'm just thumbing through, and I looked at it, and I went, whoa, it turned up the weed ear side up. So it's like, okay, great. And I haven't really spent much time with it since then, but I'm still excited about the fact that even if the odds are long, you still can come up with some discoveries out there in your change. So use cash as often as you can. So that's going to wrap it up for this one. We appreciate you coming along for the ride. Tell your friends about it. Come back and see us once again. Subscribe when you get the opportunity. But in the meantime, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week.